good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 12 is where we're going to be today. We're going to work through um, verses 4 and 5. Before we do that, I do want to give you a little bit of an introduction because this is going to be somewhat different um, than what we most normally do. And by that, I don't mean that we're not, we're going to spend all of our time paying very close attention to the scriptures. But um, what I want to do is I, I really want to take uh, Romans chapter 12 verses 4 and 5 and I want to go back and forth from this passage which Paul mentions really quickly. He deals with the body of Christ. He deals with the members. And then he has dealt with it in full uh, in a different passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And so for us to understand everything that's going to come after this, we really need to understand what it means to be the body of Christ, how we, how we are participants in the body of Christ, how we came to be a member of the body of Christ. And then ultimately what we want to see is who is the head and crown of the church. Now, the reason I say all of this is last week as we walked through this concept of pride and arrogance and how it is really an assault upon and perhaps the greatest enemy of the church united. And as we thought through that, one of the things I said is that everything as we make our way from this point forward is really dealing with the local church. And so what I want to do is I want to consider how it is that we become part of the church universal, meaning that we are a participant, meaning that we are connected to the, the true vine that is Christ. But then I want to look at what it means to live in cooperation and in fellowship with one another inside the local body of the church. And, and, and dear saint, as we press forward here, I, I do want to remind you that what we've been doing as we've been walking through Romans 12 is zooming in on the individual. We want to look at ourselves as we're examining these things. And I don't mean that we take our eyes off of Christ, but I mean as we're dealing with the applications of these texts, we want to look first and foremost inward. We want to be introspective here. We want to understand what Christ has called us as individual members of the body to. And if we can do that, then we can press through this section. And I think really what we will find on the other end is perhaps first, a higher view of the work of Christ. Secondly, a higher view of the church. And then thirdly, we can see and understand how we as members participate in this body. And dear saint, we need to reclaim this. We live in a world that is radically individualistic. We live, I, I, I mean, I remember growing up and I can't tell you one application I heard that had to do with the entirety of the local church. Dear friends, the moment that you are converted, you stop being only an individual and you start being a member of the body of Christ. And if we can reclaim that, I, I really am convinced of this, then we will look at the applications that flow from this section forward and we will gladly obey them because we actually do see each other as members of the very same body that we partake of. Because when we live in harmony with one another, when we actually do obey the command of Christ, what we are doing as we minister and care to one another is not first and foremost submitting to one another. It is first and foremost submitting to our head. And if we can grasp how we are all individual members of the very same body, then it will become very natural. And I do want us to hear that word, natural, for us to love and to care and to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to love love one another well. If we understand that we're members of the same body, then that is our natural reaction. And so with all of that said, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Romans chapter 12, starting in verse three, we'll make our way through verse eight. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 3, says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same functions. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individual members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray together. 
Father, I ask that you would encourage the saints in this time. Lord, I ask that you would accompany the preaching of your word with power. Lord, I ask that you would apply these things to our hearts and to our minds. Would you show us visions of grandeur? Would you show us the beauty of Christ as our head? Would you show us the wonder that we are in him and being in him, we are members of one another? And Lord, would you help us as members love and serve one another faithfully as we serve the Lord Jesus Christ? Lord, may we never be able to divorce the two. May it be that we serve and love one another so that we can serve and love Christ. May that be our fixation. May that be where our eyes never leave. And Lord, may it spur us on to love and to good works. To the name of Christ and through his blood we pray. Amen. Again, the way that I want to walk through this is I want to understand what the body is that's mentioned in verse 3 or verse four, forgive me. And I want to really work through that. I want to understand what the body is, how we become participants in it. And then I want to look at the life of the body itself. And then I want to look at how we submit to our head and understand that he is indeed head first and foremost. So let's look at verse four really quickly. Verse four says this, as in one body, we have many members. So before we go any further, I want to answer the question or work through the concept of of this body. What is the body that's mentioned at the very beginning of Romans chapter 12, verse four? Well, the body mentioned is we have labored to show in the past couple of weeks and really throughout the entirety of the book of Romans, the whole concept is that God is making a people through the gospel. And if I could just sum it up, maybe in a couple of ways, first, we understand this body is first and foremost, the body of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a miraculous statement in and of itself, that it's the body of Jesus Christ. We understand, and don't, mis- don't misunderstand or don't mysticize this to some degree, that Jesus is not still truly man sitting at the right hand of the Father. That's not what we're making reference to. But we are saying, I think as Ephesians 5 would articulate, that this body is his body in the sense that it is his bride. This church, the body of Christ, is the bride of Christ, and therefore he claims it as his. He is the rightful head and ruler over it. And so we understand that the body that's mentioned here is the body of Jesus Christ. A couple of other ways that we see it mentioned throughout the scriptures is it's the flock of God, according to John 10, and it's this flock of God, the sheep that belong to Christ that he lays down his life for and ultimately redeems. Another way that's already been mentioned is the bride of Christ, and I think another one is the family of God. That the body of Christ is the family of God. It is the way in which the Father has knit together a community. That he has knit together all those whom he has ransomed with his blood. And do we not recognize each other in familial language? As a matter of fact, the number one way that the church regards one another throughout the entirety of the New Testament is brother and sister. We speak of each other familiarly, and we must speak of each other familiarly. If we don't, then we're missing the overarching theme and the purposes of God. And perhaps it is that we are not understanding appropriately the doctrine of adoption or the doctrine of the new birth. When we are born again, we are born again into the family of God. When we are adopted, we are adopted into the family of God. It is the place in which Christ has placed all those whom he has redeemed. Every single person who was born again and adopted into the family of God is brought into the church is brought into his body. And so this is the way that we see this referred to throughout really the entirety of the New Testament and we have images of it in the old. But when we think about this body, I think an important question to ask is how is it that I came to be a participant in this? Have you ever looked around at your family and thought to yourself, how did I get here? And, And as you do this, you know, immediately your thought is, well, I'm here by natural birth and that's very true. But at the very same time, you're there by divine appointment as well. You're not born into your natural family haphazardly. As a matter of fact, God has preordained that you be born into the very family that you're born into. This is no different as perhaps even more explicitly true inside the body of Christ inside of the church. The reason that you are here is because God has so designed that you be here, that you be a participant in the body of Christ, that you be brought in. And so when we look around at our family, the very first thing that we need to recognize as we see the people of God around us is this, God has put me here. God has put me here. And that leads us to ask the question, how has he put you here? I mean, what gives you the right, if I may, to say that you belong to the family of God? What gives you the right to say that you're a sheep of his flock? What gives you any any right to call yourself, and perhaps this one will be even more explicit, the Israel of God? How can we make such audacious, and let's call them what they are, audacious claims? Do we not understand like when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, when he calls the father, he says, my father, the very way, by the way, that we speak of him, 
When he says that, the immediate reaction of the Jewish people is to say, no, 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 he's our father. You can never speak of him that way as an individual. But dear saints, we do. Do we not? Do we not speak of him as my father? I'm glad to proclaim that. As a matter of fact, the cry of the newborn believer is that we are his children, Abba, Father. What an intimate cry. And that's the cry of every individual member of the church. What gives you the right to call him my father? How is it, dear sinner made saint, that you can say, I belong to the body of Christ? Do you know the measure of holiness that communicates? The body of Christ? I can't even fathom such a thing. How is it that he could look at me? I know my inward being, at least in part, not in full. I know that there's still sinful ways within me and he delights to call me brother. He's glad for me to call the father, my father. And he says, you're a member of the body of Christ. Holy, radiant. As a matter of fact, if we go to passages like Ephesians 5, it would say things that he has washed her in the water of the word, that he has sacrificed himself for her for the sole intention of presenting her to himself as a church without, without radiant church, without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. And as we look at this, I think the question should be on our minds. How did I get here? And so let's answer that question, shall we? How is it that we, ruined sinners, enemies of God, let's not place ourselves on neutral ground. We were not at a net neutral with him. We were enemies How is it that we who were enemies are now made not just servants or slaves in the household of God, but we are rightly called sons and daughters or participants in the body of Christ? Well, let's look at the very first. Acts 20, 28. What a wonderful verse. And this is Paul making a charge to the elders and he tells them to care carefully, to to labor, to oversee and to protect the body. He says this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Hear this language. Which he obtained with his blood. How do you have right to participate in the body of Christ? How is it that you can call yourself a son of God? How is it that you can say that you are a member of the flock of God? It has absolutely nothing to do with your position. As a matter of fact, it has everything to do and only to do with Christ buying you with his blood. I love the language here, which he obtained with his own blood. There is no other means of redemption. There is no other means of being brought into the family of God, except that Jesus bought you with his blood. So first and foremost, we must say, if we are a member of the family of God, if we are a member of the body of Christ, it is because Jesus bought me with his blood. Bought me with his blood, not gold, not silver, not any of these frail material things in contrast with the wonderful blood of Christ. Because all of those prices, all of the wealth of the world would not redeem one sinner. But the blood of Christ can redeem a whole body, a family of God, as it were. And he has done so with perfection. I love the language here because it is so specific, isn't it? Is there any room for negotiation? How is it that you became a member of the body of Christ only because he bought you with his blood? And I will go on a bit more and, can, and, and consider the doctrine of particular redemption. He bought his people He bought his people, specifically those whom he foreknew. The reason that he bought a particular people is because he knew them from before the world began. And here we see the wonders of Christ that he would purchase us, ruined sinners though we be, if we consider passages like Romans 5, that he died for us while we were yet sinners. He obtained sinners with his own blood and said, be a part of my body. Be a part of my body. Call yourself a son of God. And do so boldly, proclaim it gladly. And you can never do so boasting because you know that you stand here not because of anything that you've done, but only because of what Christ has accomplished. He bought you with his blood. If there's any reason for comfort, saint, in your participation in the body, it's that you can always go back to the simple phrase, he bought me with his blood. And perish the thought that that wondrous sacrifice would fail. As a matter of fact, the entrance of the New Testament begins as the name of Christ makes its way onto the scene for the first time. Call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. You were bought with his blood. Why do you have right of participation? Why do you get to call yourself a child of God? Why do you get to utter the words, Abba, Father? Because Jesus bought you with his blood. And if we could pause here for a moment, 
That means that the people to your left and to your right were bought with that very same blood. If we could maybe introduce the theme in which we gladly love one another, perhaps the simplest is this. Jesus bought them with his blood. And here we stand as members of the body of Christ. We were straying like sheep, as 1 Peter said, but we've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. So the primary reason that we can say that we have any participation in this is because Jesus bought us with his blood. But let's go further, shall we? Not only has he bought us with his blood, that's the price, that's redemption accomplished. Let's see it applied, shall we? You have been baptized with the Holy Spirit and are nurtured by that same Spirit. I want to pay attention to 1 Corinthians 12, and you might as well hold your place in 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one Spirit, we were baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the Spirit. So we must say first and foremost, the reason that I have right to call myself a member of the body of Christ is because Jesus bought me with his blood. But secondly, I must also and gladly say that I have been born of the Spirit of God, that I have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, let's not misunderstand this phrasing. This is not a different level of new birth or a different baptism. That's not what's being made reference to. This is the baptism that is common to every single individual that professes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no secondary, there is no double. Here is what we see. We see that Jesus bought us with his blood and then we see in perfect harmony with him buying a particular people with his blood, the spirit then comes and gives life to those individuals. And here in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it's referred to as being baptized. And I want you to hear the language. You're baptized into something. We understand according to Romans chapter six that you're baptized into Christ. But we also need to understand that we are baptized into Christ and being baptized into Christ means that we are baptized into one body. And here it is making reference, I think quite clearly to the universal church or the invisible church. Brothers and sisters, we are a part of a church that expands past time in space. Every single individual who has ever professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is vitally connected to him and that connection runs deep. It runs past time. It runs past space. When we are baptized by the Spirit into this one body, it does not matter whether you are a Jew or a Greek, which plays very important role into Romans here, but at the very same time, it matters not if you are slave or free. The reality is that you are brought into the very same body that we participate one with another in every way with every saint who has ever existed. We truly are a part of his body. We are the body of Christ based upon this spiritual baptism into it. But then we go further. So that's the means by which we enter in. But to go a bit further, how is it that we we, we we're bought with the blood of Christ, we're baptized by the Spirit into this one body. But then I think the question that needs to be asked is, how is it that I participate in this? Because there is a participation, right? How did I get here? Well, that was through Christ's blood. How was that applied to me that I was brought into the church universal? Well, that's by the Spirit's baptism. And then the last question is, how do I participate? How am I actively involved inside of the body of Christ? And I want to read to you two major passages. And these two passages are vitally important to our understanding of both the church universal, but I think more importantly here, the church local. I said last week that everything that we're going to push through, everything that we're going to look at in the coming weeks is going to deal with how we function as a visible representation of the body of Christ, the local church. Listen to the language in Romans 6, 3 through 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. How do we participate in this? Well, the very first way we participate in this is through the ordinance of baptism. We come preaching, do we not? Is not the ordinance of baptism and the ordinance of the table a preaching ordinance? Does it not proclaim? What does it proclaim? It proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says that I have died with Christ. I have been raised with Christ. I live as a new creation. And now I'm going to be nurtured by the spirit according to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. When we come, we come participating. And what we participate in is first and foremost baptism. We come and we enter the church in this way. We come proclaiming the gospel in this way. And the very first thing that we see any true believer do 
After repentance is baptism. They come professing. What do they come professing? Not that they have any right to be here, but actually they come professing that they deserve to be under the judgment of God and yet they live. The proclamation of the gospel is one of the ways that we participate. We participate in, according to Romans 6, 3 through 4, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. You are there. We speak of substitutionary atonement as if it is just a theological category. Dear saint, when you look at the cross of Christ, when you see the tomb, when you see him raised from the dead, you are right to say, I was there. It's there that my sins were nailed, was it not? Was it not in the tomb that he removed my sins as far as the east is from the west, that he removed them from the earth as it were? And when we see him raised, is that resurrection not the same resurrection that we will experience? He's the firstborn from the dead. But he is not alone. No, he brings many sons to glory. And so we come proclaiming, we come preaching that we participate in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. And then we come in that very same proclamation to the table. And hear me, these two ordinances are given to the church to execute. They're given to the church to to enjoy, to guard, to protect, but also to enjoy. And here, listen to 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Pause for a minute. What does our Lord say in John 6 that's so, so difficult for so many? You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. How has he given us the means to participate in this? He tells us, come to the table. Come to the table, eat and drink. This is not a transubstantiation. No, 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 no. He's saying that this is a blessed bread broken. This is a blessed cup offered. And he goes on in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the body of Christ? True participation. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Our participation in the body of Christ is seen and experienced at a local level. And hear me, I want you to hear me say this. If you believe that you are participating in the body of Christ apart from a local expression of it, you're fooling yourselves. There is no means of participation. He has called us to be a part of a local congregation. And he has called us to be a part of a local congregation because he has called us to ordinances that are necessary and and only guarded by the church of Jesus Christ. He says, come be baptized. Where do I do that? I do that inside the context of the local church. Come to the table. And he says, well, where do we see that? We see it in the context of the local church. Dear saint, you are a participant by the blood of Jesus Christ in the body, but the expression of it is on a local level. It has always been on a local level. And so what do we see? We are truly... And we have every right to say that we are children of God, that we are the body of Christ based upon the fact that he has bought us with his blood. We have experienced, if you be in the Lord Jesus Christ today, you have experienced the spiritual baptism in which you go forth crying, Abba, Father, as you come out of those spiritual waters. Or perhaps further, we say, not only that, I am even now nurtured by this very same spirit and I have come and I have participated in baptism. I have participated in, I have declared that I am actually present in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. There is all my hope and I participate in and enjoy the ordinance of the table each and every time it arrives. I am a participant. Now, I think we can gladly say all of that. But then we take that, all of those wondrous realities, we apply them to ourselves. And before we go further, hear me, you must also apply them to your brother and sister. You must apply them to your brother and sister. Are they not participants in Christ? Do you not come to the same table? Do you not proclaim his death, burial, and resurrection? And the difficulty, if we go any further here and we miss this part, We will have great difficulty in obeying his commands. We apply every single one of those realities to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We look at them and we must, as a matter of fact, I think this is one of the primary purposes of the local church to remind people of wondrous things. We do very little teaching here and we do a lot of reminding. You are bought by the blood of Christ. 
You've been baptized by the Holy Spirit into him. You are a participant in baptism and you are a participant in the table and you come eating and drinking, dear brother, dear sister, you are a member of the body of Christ and you must gladly proclaim it. And then we look at the members and we actually deal with the intricacies of living life together. We go forth saying things like, yes, we're all collectively bought with the blood of Christ. Yes, we've been baptized into one baptism. And all of that is fantastic until someone sins against you, right? All of it's great until all of a sudden someone offends your sensibilities or your preferences, God forbid, be assaulted. Hear me. There is transcendent realities that must overhang everything, hear me, everything that we will discuss today and in the weeks, in the weeks to come. We understand that Christ is the head of the church. We understand that we are members of his body. And as we're about to look, we're going to look at what that means. But we must first and foremost understand that Jesus bought my brother and my sister with his blood. So let's press forward, shall we? Looking at our text again, verse four. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not have the same functions. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individual members of one another. Now, what I wanna do is I wanna work through this and I wanna show us the picture of the body and zoom in to the members. I really want to pay special attention to the members here. Because I think this is really where the rubber meets the road. We go on saying things. We, 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 we love to preach transcendent realities as we should. But when they begin to touch our individual lives in the day to day, all of a sudden things get a bit messy, don't they? And so here, let's, let's examine this for a moment. First, how do we understand the members of the body? First, we need to understand that the body of Christ is constituted by many members. This is by design. This is not by accident right? He intended to make up his body of many members. And he uses perhaps the simplest of illustrations. Every single individual on the planet understands that there are multiple members of the same body. You don't really need a biology degree to understand that. You can look around and you can see that people have hands, people have feet, people have eyes, people have ears. And every single body is made up and constituted of various parts. And this is the picture that he wants to have, that he wants the reader to have in his mind. And I would invite you to, to, to lock into this view for a moment, that there is one body. We'll understand a little bit later what that body is. We've already spoken of it. We'll see it in full a bit later. There is one body and we look at that body and we understand that there are various pieces and parts. Now you tell me, is a, is a body glad when the members are not functioning appropriately? I imagine every single one of you in some way, shape, or form have experienced illness and you know immediately that an illness, if it be in your stomach, in your head, or in your heart, affects the entirety of the body. And the whole concept of this is picture the human body and understand as we look at the whole body that is Christ, we need to look and understand how the members are to conduct themselves, how the members are to exist upon one another. And so you have this concept of there's one body, but there's many members. And then let's go forward and ask the question, what do the many members do? The many members have distinct and diverse functions and offices. Now, before we go further, first, we must understand that every single member does have a function. It does have a function. And perhaps it is that you sit here today and you think to yourself, I don't know what my function is. And I know that that's a trial. There's a reason that spiritual gift tests are so prominent. Dear Saint, you have a function based upon the fact that God has placed you here. We can stop, full stop right there. But we also need to understand that you are not relegated to your giftings. When God blesses a church with an individual, he does not simply, he is not stacking the roster with in particular gifts, he's giving a person. And so what we understand about the body of Christ and its members, we'll look at giftings next week, but what we must first understand is that you because you have been bought by the blood of Christ, baptized by the, by the Spirit, participate, participating inside the body, that you are a gift to the church and that you have gifts and abilities that are to be brought here and they're not separate from your person. And so every member has a function. 
Secondly, some of those members will hold offices in the church. Some particular gifts and abilities do make their way into certain positions inside of the church of Christ. The reason that we have elders is because God demands that there be elders among you. And not only that, but there are certain stipulations and requirements that elders must meet. And so we make it our aim to make sure that every single elder meets those qualifications, that they're able to teach, that they're above reproach, that they're sober-minded and not a brawler. This is our aim. Why? Because God has so equipped and given this office to the church for its good. And then we go further and we say deacons. God has given men unique abilities to care for the physical needs of the body. And in doing so, he has set up an office to execute that in. But hear me, dear saint, just because you don't fill the role of elder or deacon does not make you less of a member. We forget that there is actually, I hate to use the word office because it certainly is not called that in scripture, but apart from the congregation, elders and deacons have no real role. It's our jobs to care for you and to love you, but you bring functionality and care to us. God has given each individual certain functions. Certainly he has given some offices, but the functions of the body must be expressed inside of it. Otherwise, the body will not be healthy. So to simply say it this way, the function of every member in the church is according to the measure of faith God has assigned. Turn your attention back to verse three. In verse three, it says this, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to what? The measure of faith that God has assigned. And if you go further down to verse six, it says this, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And so what you see here, dear saint, is every single individual member of the body has particular functions based upon the gift of faith that God gives by his grace. Now, if we understand that, should we not understand that if it be a gift of grace, if it be a means by which I can express and reveal the faith that I have in the Lord Jesus Christ, then it is only right for me to express it inside of the body. This is the reality of every single Christian. You have been given gifts and abilities and you as an individual, God is sanctifying and giving you to us for our good and your edification. We live in the body cooperatively and together and God has given each gifts and abilities and they are to be expressed. Hear me, we cannot withhold them. Now, I have already said, I have already said that the gifts are not in essence what we are after. No, the person. One of the primary ways that saints are prone to withhold their gifts is to withhold their fellowship. It's sad to say, but do we not recoil from fellowship? They're saying, when you recoil from fellowship, hear me, pastoral plea, you are withholding your gifts that are good for the church and you are causing yourself to be malnourished. Do not misunderstand this. You can be the most theologically precise individual on the planet. I do not care. If you withhold yourself from the local church, you will be malnourished. So, if all of this is true, we turn our attention to 1 Corinthians 12. Because 1 Corinthians 12, I think, really does work out how we conduct ourselves as members of the body. We know that the gifts that we have been given are to be exercised. We know that they're given of grace. We know that they're expressions of our faith. But so, I mean, I think there's so many questions that surround this. And Paul introduces the vast majority of them in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And as we look there, we, we just want to ask a couple of questions. Really, we want to ask the questions that the apostle asks. Because if we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there's, there are a variety of questions that are introduced. But let's just start with the first one. Uh, or maybe uh, in light of those questions, let me say this. Regardless of position and function, you belong to the body of Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 15 through 16. I've actually never noticed this phrasing inside of 1 Corinthians 12. I'm always moving past it. But there's a really interesting way that Paul articulates this. 1 Corinthians 12, 15 through 16, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, you would, that would not make it any less a part of the body. I've always moved past that phrasing. But the reality is, like I'm always looking at the question, I'm always looking at the statement that the hand is envious or the foot is envious of, a, of another role. And I think that's certainly what's in line here. But just because 
you are discontented in your position, it does not eliminate you or remove you from the body of Christ. You must be a participant. You cannot remove yourself from this. And so let's just play out this question for just a moment, shall we? So in verse 15, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. Let's, let's, let's play that out inside of the local church for a minute. So you have the foot looking at the hand and saying, okay, because I'm not you, because you're doing something that, that I want to be able to do or something that I see is more valuable, therefore I'm not actually a part of the body. And the immediate response, and I do think it is a swift rebuke to the foot, they would not make it any less part of the body. Just, just, there is no gifting that should be held to such an esteem that if you don't possess that gift, you are actually not a part of the body of Christ. There's no gifting. There's no ability, there's no talent, there's no nothing. The reality is that the body actually does need and require a multiplicity of giftings. And so what you see here is the foot looking at the hand and saying, because I'm not as fruitful or prominent or because I do not do the very same things that you do, then I cannot rightly call myself a, a member of the body of Christ. And immediately Paul comes in with the swiftness of rebukes and says, you're being discontent, first of all. Secondly, you can't remove yourself from the body of Christ. You cannot look at the hand and say, because I'm not as prominent, therefore I am not a member. This is not so. Again, you were bought with the blood of Christ. He purchased you to bring you into the body. And if you look at various portions of the body of Christ and you say, because I'm not that, maybe it's because I don't lead in any capacity or because I don't preach or because I don't teach or because I do not have the financial means to be uniquely generous, that I'm not a rightful member of the body of Christ. That is not so. You're a member of the body of Christ based upon what Christ has done. And you should be glad-hearted and far past glad-hearted, joyfully content with the unique giftings that God has given you. They're for the good of the church. And hear me, lovingly, he's smarter than you when he gave you to us. He knew what we needed long before we did. And so we play this out a little bit further. Perhaps it is the young to the mature. You look at the mature in the faith, perhaps it is that you're a new believer. You've been a believer for a year, two years, and you look at the mature and you say, oh, I'm not as wise. I'm not as, as Christ-like. I'm, I'm still growing in grace. And you look at them and you say, oh, but I'm a, I'm a lesser tier of the body of Christ. Incorrect. You are a member of the body of Christ because you were bought with his blood. You do not look at the mature and long and covet their position. Instead, you go to them and you say, will you aid me in my walk? Will you care for me? Will you cause me to mature? Will you be a blessing to me by the Spirit? So we certainly do not have the young looking to the mature and we certainly even then do not have the single looking to the married. Perhaps it is that you look at marriage as a true means of entrance to the church. It isn't. The question is, are you a member of the bride of Christ? And if you're a member of the bride of Christ, then you say with absolute certainty, I belong to him. There is no tier membership inside the body. And so we look at each of these things and we say, I can't look at the various gifts that God has given. Let's call them what they are because regardless of what the foot thinks, he understands that the hand is a gift. The problem is he doesn't see the foot is necessary. The foot is necessary. The hand is necessary. All of these things are necessary. Going on in that same very text, it says, and if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. The whole premise here is that every single member of the body, for lack of better terms, is a member of the body. You are. And perhaps it is that you struggle with this. Perhaps it is that you have some desire for a different office. First, I would encourage you, kill your discontentedness. And secondly, I would say, understand your position. You are not second tier, third tier, whatever tier you'd like to come up with. You're bought by the blood of Christ. And if you're bought by the blood of Christ, I'll be honest with you, I don't really care if there's another tier. This is the only one I want to be in. Secondly, we must understand in regard to the members that there are diverse positions and functions members hold, and it is necessary for the body to be the body. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 17 through 20. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So first, there is and must be, must be diversity in the members of Christ's body. Now, Don mentioned something to me before we walked out of the pastor's parlor. 
this is an interesting movement that we've seen as of late, isn't there? Where there seems to be churches that are aiming to gather particular giftings, and I'm using that term loosely, that are not actually giftings. And what do we see as a result? Is it not the most spiritually dead and unhealthy congregation that exists? It's void of gospel. It's void of true gifting. And every single individual is not, is not someone who Jesus bought with his blood. They are their giftings. Perish the thought. No, there must be a multitude, a diversity among giftings. And if we make it our aim to grab particular talent and ability, then what we are setting the body up for is destruction. And primarily, even more so than that, it not to be a functioning body. To hear the language again, what does it say? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, I want you to hear this language, where would the body be? The whole concept of this is that the body does not, cannot be the body apart from a multiplicity of members with diverse functions. And the reason we labor this point is to show that Christ did not err in his constituting of the church. He gave unique abilities. He gave unique persons to fill very specific roles that each individual local church needs. So let's look at it just from this perspective. Hands without feet or eyes without ears. Tell me, how is it that the feet make their way to do anything without the hands present to execute? Or how is it that the hands actually get to the location without the feet walking? It is an impossibility. No, they are dependent upon one another, are they not? They must be dependent upon one another. Or let's go further, eyes without ears, as it's clearly mentioned. How is it that I would be able to hear the the beauty of various other giftings apart from the ears that God has given? Or how is it that I would see and behold beauty appropriately without the eyes that God has given? No, dear saint, we need both to behold beauty and wonder appropriately. So it is inside the church. Apart from God giving the various gifts and abilities, every member of the body that is necessary for it to constitute a body, there is no body. And let's maybe isolate this to the context of the local church. Let's do this. Let's do preachers without hearers. Could you imagine, this actually does happen sometimes. Could you imagine me standing here and preaching with no one present? Many people would consider me a foolish man. Or how is it, that we still have men who would walk out the door, abandon congregations so that they can hear their own voice. No, 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 no. The pulpit ministry is tied to the church. And then perhaps going further, what about sheep without shepherds? Is it not called the flock of God? Is he not given under shepherds to care for it? He gives unique gifts and abilities so that there can be a mutual care one for another. And so we must have multiplicity of giftings and abilities. We must have people in certain offices. But then going forward, and I think this is one that perhaps is prominent, older men without younger men to train. Hear me, one of the most interesting things that I experienced as I was making my way through church planting is they simply wanted me to reach, and I kid you not, a particular age demographic. The whole goal was you need to be grabbing people who are about 30 to 40. And my first thought is, what an unhealthy, ungodly congregation. Because the whole concept is, well, we need to reach these particular people. No, 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 hear me. The gospel equips the church. Christ equips the church. What do we do? We preach the gospel. And God equips the church. And you know what I find incredibly interesting? He does so from various generations, from various backgrounds. And it's almost like he does it. It's almost like he has an intention. But imagine a church where the young men don't have older men to, to admire and model their lives after. Or go further. Imagine a church where all we have are young 20-something women with no godly saints to model their lives after. We cannot fulfill biblical commands in that congregation. We cannot live out passages like Titus 2. We can't. It would be an impossibility altogether. No, dear saint, we do not, by any stretch of the imagination, say that we don't need diversity. No, we understand that we do need a diversity, but we need a biblical diversity. Now, one other that I think is rather helpful. The merciful without those who need mercy. Some of you here have been on the receiving end of some of the most wonderfully merciful people on the planet. Have you not? Have you not experienced the kindness of the Lord through your brothers and sisters in Christ? Imagine a church that has no need for mercy. 
I can go ahead and tell you what that church becomes, callous and cold. Or perhaps it is that we have people who are uniquely generous, and that's our aim. We aim to reach only the wealthy of, the, of, of DeSoto County. <sighs> they love a storefront. The reality is that that creates a congregation where there is no generosity. There is no kindness to one another. There is no sacrificial giving and love. You see, dear saint, God has equipped the body appropriately. He's equipped the body so that the body can minister to each other. He's equipped the body so that all the commands of Christ that are given, all that Paul writes in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus in regard to the local church, everything in 1 Corinthians, that all of that can be perfectly executed inside the body. And we are not foolish enough to be able to fabricate it. No, we trust that Christ will do it. And we do not look at one another and say, oh, I wish you were like me. And we certainly do not look at others and say, oh, everybody needs to be this. No, if everybody is this, the church will fall apart. Secondly, I want you to see in this text, there is diversity based upon God's infinitely wise design. Look at verse 18. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. We've already walked through divine wisdom as of late and the surpassing intellect of our God, omniscient. You want to look at him? You want to question his ability to come up with the concept of the body of Christ in the midst of this? You want to challenge him? You want to be like Job and darken counsel without knowledge? No, God has arranged or put individuals exactly where he chose them to be. And to go a bit further, let's, let's personalize this for just a moment, shall we? Why are you, and, I, and I'm speaking directly to the individual, why are you here? And I mean here. Why are you in this local body? Hear me. Don't think it's happenstance. Don't think it's you did a full assessment of various churches, though you perhaps did that. You're here because God has ordained you to be here. And if your membership is here, God has brought you here with a clear intent for both the church as a whole and you as an individual. God has assigned, God has given, God has placed. And then I think even in particular of the life of this particular local church, I think of timing. Because the reality is when Mercy Hill was started, I remember having a particular people. But do you know what? That's not the people that sit here today. Many, sure, but a lot are brand new saints. But here's the reality. I know, and the reality is that God has brought and knit this community together based upon his perfect wisdom. And what an incredible thing to lean into and to trust in. Because we are so busy from time to time trying to figure out what's next or what happened previously and we want the old instead of the new. No, dear saint, God is perfect in his giving of people and he's perfect in his timing in which he gives. And so what do we have? We have a beautiful, beautiful body of Christ that is knit together, not because we are similar, not because we're all eyes, not because we're all feet, but because we all have been bought by the blood of Jesus. We are one body. Now we go further. Third, the members of the body of Christ are members of one another. I want us to hear this. We are members of one another and are dependent upon one another. I want you to hear that word, dependent. You are, dear saint, we are woefully and gladly dependent upon one another. Hear what the text says, Romans 12, 5. So we, the many, are one body in Christ and individual members of one another. Let's explicitly say it. I belong to you. I belong to you. But not only that, you belong to me. And this is true. Every single individual of the body is able to say this. They must say this. They must say that I belong to them, that I have covenanted with them as members of my local church. I belong to them and they belong to me. I love what Murray says on this. He says, they have property in one another, property in one another. And therefore, in one another's gifts and graces, this is not the communism which destroys personal property. It is community that recognizes the distinguished gifts which God has distributed. And so individuality is jealously maintained. But the diversity enriches each member because they have communion in all the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which God has dispensed according to his own will. We belong to each other. Your gifts are my gifts. My gifts are your gifts. And this is true peer to peer, one to one. We belong to each other. 
And that's so incredibly clear throughout every single passage that makes reference to the local church. There is a real belonging and ownership of one another. As it were, you are your brother's keeper. We belong to one another. And that means, as 1 Corinthians 12, 21 says, listen to this. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Remember, we're dependent. We are dependent upon the body that Christ has placed us in. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again to the, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. And so I am not only right, but I am exercising obedience to God when I express dependence on my brother. It is right for me to say I depend on you. And you are right to say that you depend on so-and-so, your brother, your sister. You are right to do this. And perhaps it is, as 1 Corinthians 12 says, let's read it again. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. And perhaps it is that these words would never be uttered by you, right? We would never verbally say this. We would never look at our brother, Lord willing, and say, I have no need of you. But goodness gracious, we live like it. When was the last time, dear saint, that you called your brother and said, I need you? Sister, when was the last time that you called an older woman and said, I need help loving my husband? Young man pursuing ministry, when was the last time you said, teach me to love the congregation? Older man, when was the last time that you said, I need the strength of a young man? We cannot live like this. And here's why. It is prideful. It is ungodly to believe yourself self-sufficient. You assault the wisdom of God. We are one body. And we are dependent upon one another. And in being dependent upon one another, we are recognizing our dependence upon God who has brought those people to us. Perish the thought that we possess any self-sufficiency. And the reality is, when all of this is said and done, again, if we are not dependent upon one another, we will be malnourished. And there are few things more terrifying than a Christian And I'm using that term in the truest sense. A Christian who says, I will be away from the body. You will be dead. Give it but a moment. Finally, God has given universal honor to the members of the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 22 through 25. This passage has been worked through a number of times in various ways some of which are somewhat uncomfortable. But it says this, On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Now, let's pay very close attention to this. Here you see some parts of the body are considered weaker. Hear me. Perhaps it is that you would place yourself in this category. Perhaps it is that you would place yourself as someone who has the weaker of the giftings. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul. Indispensable. Indispensable. And that is strong language, isn't it? I mean, my goodness, sometimes we have organs fail and we just cut them out. No, not so with the body of Christ. We, we see weaker brothers, or perhaps it is that you consider yourself to be a weaker brother, and God looks at them through the Apostle Paul and says, indispensable. Dear saint, you are indispensable. If you believe yourself to be the weakest among us, then know this, you're indispensable. What a wonderful place to be. And then perhaps it is, we go further, some parts of the body are thought of, a very important word there, thought of less honorably, and on those, we bestow greater honor. 
And then going forward, it says some parts are unpresentable. We treat them with modesty. And there is a variety of ways to understand this section, but I think it should be understood as a whole, not in its individual parts. We're not looking at this and breaking it apart into various different positions inside of the church. Instead, every position, even the ones that are viewed as lowly, weak, less honorable, or unpresentable are to be revered with honor, understanding that God has assigned each individual to their role and he has done so with perfection. It doesn't matter what you consider about yourself, whether you think yourself weaker, unpresentable, lacking of honor, those individuals are to be given utmost honor. Why? Because God has placed them in our midst. And is this not also true of the human body? Do we not give unique care and honor to those things that are unpresentable and dishonorable? Most certainly we do. And so there is a unique care given here, but I, but I want to introduce this thought because I think sometimes we work through this passage so quickly that we ignore this phrase in verse 23 and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable. I want to ask you the question, what parts of Christ's body are you willing to think of less honorably? I mean, really, which, which parts would you say, uh, maybe not so much honor? That, no, dear saint, this is the body of Christ we speak of. All are to be given honor. All are to be given their due respect of nothing else as image bearers, but more so than that as those whom Jesus bought with his blood. We bestow great honor on them, understanding that they are necessary for the health of the body. And if everyone were an eye, there would be nobody. We understand that God has equipped the church appropriately, that God has given the church everything that it needs and it should be understood in every role, every capacity as an honorable role, an honorable piece of the body. Now, finally, God has composed the body in such a way to slay pride through dependence and promote unity through shared suffering and rejoicing. Turn your attention back to 1 Corinthians 12, 24. It says this, second phrase of 24, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there be no division in the body. So the reality is that we don't get to look at one another and assume that we hold a more honorable position. The honor that you hold was given to you by God. And that honor is first and foremost in the reality that you are a part, you are a member that composes the body. Tell me, how is it that understanding that we all possess equal honor murders, and I do mean murders, pride? that we are dependent upon one another. Dear Saint, we are, again, woefully dependent upon one another. And here's the reality. Help me, brother, does not come out of the mouth of the proud. It doesn't. It will never be uttered. No, you will die in a corner with pride before you say, help me. You will sit there malnourished, wavering, tired, feeble. All the while, all you need is a brother to bring you some milk. No, pride is slain in the midst of our dependence. And then there is a wonderful unity, isn't there? The unity is a unity that shares in suffering and rejoicing. Hear the words of the apostle again, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. We rejoice, we go through suffering and anguish and sorrow and difficulty together. But here's the difference, because perhaps you think, ah, but I can do that inside of my individual family. And and there's truth to that. And perhaps it is that you have a mixed family like mine. You have people who love the Lord Jesus Christ. They honor him. They want to serve him faithfully. And then perhaps it is that you have unbelievers in your midst as well. Isn't it interesting that even in the midst of my suffering in my home, there is a discrepancy in the way that I suffer in my home with the way that I suffer in the church. Why? Because how do saints suffer? When, when a dear brother in the Lord goes home, how do we rejoice? You heard me. How do we rejoice? Do we rejoice in suffering? Do we rejoice in the reality that our brother has made his way to the presence of God? Tell me, do you get that in your home the way you get that in the church? Or when you mourn, when your heart shatters, and my goodness, the amount of shattered hearts in this congregation. When your heart shatters, who looks at you and says, suffer well. Rejoice in the Lord even amidst your trials. Know that this is testing you, that it will produce perseverance, that it will be used for your good and the glory of God. Who looks at you and says that? 
How often, perhaps it is that you are blessed and that is often in your home. But here's the reality. In the church, that is the benchmark. And what unity erupts from weeping together? What unity erupts from celebrating and rejoicing together? Not in an ungodly way, but in the godliest of ways. Because our rejoicing, our mourning, our weeping, our cheering and praising is all done under the banner of Christ's headship. And so what do we have? We have a beautiful, beautiful body that are made up of many, many members. And to conclude it, we turn our attention back to Romans. And it says this, so we though many are one body. One. One body. So you take all of those pieces, all of those hands and feet and eyes and ears, and you throw them together in the miraculous way that God does. And he says, this is my body. But let's look at the head for a moment, shall we? Because the reality is that our oneness is only and exclusively, look at the language of Romans 12 again. So though, so we though many are one body, how are we one body? I mean, what makes this like really? We understand that we're bought with the blood of Christ. Praise be to God for that. But, but what does he do in the midst of his buying of us? He places us in Christ. Can I read to you a passage, one that I imagine the majority of us are familiar with? And I want to read you this language because this is the very same language that Paul uses in Ephesians 1. This in him motif, the reason that we're one body, we're one body in him. To read you Ephesians 1, forgive me, I'm going to read a larger portion because I just want you to hear the motif here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Dear saint, is there redemption without the in him? And there is no body without the in him. Our unity is anchored in this reality that we are in him. We've spoken of it in Romans 6, to be baptized in him. So it is with our unity amidst the body. We are in him together. It is not just a you in him. No, the whole reality is that all the church of God, all those who he bought with his blood, he has in him made a body, his body. And so let me explain this to you if I could just shortly. It means that we are not one based upon our location. You can be here today and not be one of us. That is a painful yet true reality. You can be here, you could be here every single week. If you are not in him, then there is no participation in the body. If you can call yourself anything, it's a tear. The in him motif is what we must understand, that we are in him created to be a particular body, just as he has executed redemption, just as he has executed the every plan and purpose, adoption, the whole shebang is in him, so is the body of Christ. We are in him. That means, if I could go a bit further, that there is only one who has right to rule. There is no other head. Only Christ has right of headship in the church. I don't care who you present. It most certainly is not the Pope. It's not me. It's not your elders. Christ is the head of the church. Let's explain this just from a couple of passages, shall we? Ephesians 1, through 23, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ephesians 4, 15 through 16, rather than speaking, speaking the truth and love, grow up into him who is the head of the church. Colossians 1, 18, and the 
simplest and most precise verse in scripture on this. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the head. This means that he is the animator of every member. Tell me, why does your foot move? Is it not because the head commanded? Why does your mouth utter particular words and perhaps sometimes stumble over them? Because the head demanded it. Dear saint, Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. He is the one who animates. He has right to rule and reign because he bought her with his blood. We look to no other, but hear me as we go forward. This means that the head of the church, Christ, has commanded that we be members of one another, expressing unique care, unique humility, unique unity inside of the body. When we give ourselves to the other members of the church, we are first and foremost submitting to our head. Rebellion is not an option. You know what we call members who reject the authority and the dominion of the system in which it lives? We call it cancer. And I know that for so many of you, that instantly prods heinous and horrid moments. Why do we wage war on sin? Why do we submit to our head? Because we love the bride. We love our head and we want to see that wondrous bride free from spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. We know that that's Christ's work. He is the one who executes it. But perish the thought that I refuse to submit to my head. Everything that we will look at in the coming weeks from giftings to let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, everything works itself out in this reality. Dear Saint, Go on boasting that you belong to the body of Christ because you have been bought with his blood. But we must also go loving the members of that body. And we must always be going submitting to Christ who is our head. Let's pray together.